Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Matthew 10, 38 through 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Matt. In uh, 2016, NPR did an interview with a musician named Anoni, and uh, she had just come out with an album called Hopelessness, and on that album was uh, a song called Four Degrees, which was about climate change. And the chorus of that song goes like this. I want to see this world, I want to see it boil. I want to see this world, I want to see it boil. It's only four degrees, it's only four degrees, it's only four degrees. And it's not a sad or somber song, it's a kind of a get hype on the dance floor kind of song. And so the interviewer uh, asked her about this in, in this interview that I want to share with you. Uh, the interviewer says, I want to talk about one more song on this album, Four Degrees. This is a song that I would totally dance to, but it's, it's about global warming. And uh, Anoni says, you know, the idea was to give voice to the narrative that underscores the reality of my behavior rather than my intention. My behavior is as a participant in this culture and as someone who enjoys fossil fuels, comforts. And so I'm not being ironic when I sing this. I'm actually singing the song of my body as opposed to the song of my intention. And the interviewer goes, wow, okay, so you're calling yourself out. And she says, this is my song. This is our song. This is what we actually think. None of us want this to be happening, but we're all doing it. On this record, I'm trying to crack my own denial. Now, I share that with you because I find it really fascinating that she's putting words to what Christians do all the time, which is we examine our lives and we acknowledge out loud the gap between our behavior and our intentions. You know, so it's one thing to say, this is what I believe. I believe X, Y, or Z. But when you honestly look at my life, there's a, there's a gap there. I don't always live in a way that's consistent with what I say that I believe. So, for example, we all just this morning uh, read and said together the Heidelberg Catechism question one, which is that we belong, I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Christians say we believe. We believe that we belong to Jesus. We, be we belong to God. But if we're honest, uh, deep down, um, we, are, we feel autonomous, Deep down, we feel like he's not in charge of my life. I'm in charge of my life. And because it's my life, I can do whatever I want. I belong to me. Uh, and so what I want us to do this morning, what we're going to do is um, examine our lives. And I want to invite us all, myself included, to repent of our self-sovereignty, of our self-sovereignty. Now, now, here's what I mean by that. I, I want to illustrate it this way. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard this phrase recently, I've heard this a lot recently, um, the phrase is this, my body, my choice. 
you've heard this. Uh, you often hear this in debates, particularly about abortion. Uh, and you might hear somebody on the, on the left of things politically, you might hear them say something like that, like, oh, well, it's my body, my choice. And it's fascinating in recent months that when the subject of vaccines or masks have come out, that same language of my body, my choice has also been used, but by people on the right of things politically. Now, I know I'm not even to point one yet, and I've mentioned climate change and um, abortion and vaccine mandates. And so just, just to be clear, I'm not giving any opinions on any of those subjects at this moment, um, nor will I today. Uh, but I just want to draw your attention to the fact that that language is, is, is you know, fairly universal, that we use that language, my body, my choice, it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum, it doesn't really matter what the issue of the debate is. We all believe deep down, I belong to me, and therefore I can do whatever I want with me. I'm the one in charge of me, and we uh, love that. We celebrate that. So isn't that a good thing? Why in the world would we need to repent of that? Why is that something that we would spend time talking about and thinking that's something that is worth examining and repenting over? Well, that's what I want to try to do for the rest of our time this morning. I want to show you two things. Self-sovereignty, I, I want to try to show you that it's poisonous, but it, it has an antidote. So self-sovereignty is poisonous, number one, and number two, but it does have an antidote. So let's try to um, explain what I mean by why it's poisonous. And to do that, I want to look at this. I included this verse from the book of Judges in your bulletin. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, it's, an old, it's a book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that might be the most disturbing book of the Bible. It's, um, it is incredibly graphic. It's incredibly just, just disturbing. And, and yet, it might also be the most helpful book of the Bible to help us understand our modern context. The, the way that the book works in terms of its plot is... Um, things get increasingly worse as it goes on. It, it compounds so that by the time you get to the end of the, the story, it crescendos in such a way that is so unsettling, so disturbing. I'm not even going to recap the story to you because it's so violent and gory. I mean, Quentin Tarantino would be ashamed of, of what's, what's in the Bible in this story. But, the, but Judges ends with Israel collapsing in on itself in a civil war, it ends in just moral anarchy and violence and chaos. And four times at the end of the book, there is this phrase that gets repeated over and over and over, and I included it. It's that phrase right there uh, in chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That phrase shows up in chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, and then this verse right here, 21, 25, which is the last verse in the Bible, which is a way of saying this is, this is the Bible's way of doing cultural analysis. This is the Bible's way of saying, okay, how do we make sense of the chaos and the violence in this particular moment? It's because there's no king, meaning there was, there was no uh, overarching, ultimate moral authority. And so if there is no moral authority, then everybody just did whatever is right in their own eyes. People said, well, I'm not obliged to anybody else's sense of right and wrong except mine. 
And so that's what they did, and that's, according to the Bible, why things were so chaotic. You can take that same approach and do a modern cultural analysis and do the same thing and say, okay, well, for our context, um, we don't really have a king, but for a long time we've related to God as a Western society as our kind of ultimate moral authority, but there's been a big shift pretty dramatically so that now we, we have said culturally God is either dead or we've so relegated and diminished God to your kind of private religion, private little thoughts. He's so pushed to the margins. He doesn't really functionally matter. He's kind of deleted from the conversation. And so if there is no God or if he's just totally irrelevant, then people are kind of, you know, you, you get to create your own moral system. If there is no God, then everybody can kind of do whatever is right in their own eyes. If there is no overarching meta-narrative, then you get to determine meaning and purpose for your life. If there is no ultimate moral authority, you get to decide what is right and wrong for you. If there is no ultimate truth, you get to decide what is true for you. And we, I guess I would say there's a lot of people that celebrate that, that love that, that find that liberating. And this is not, I know I'm not telling you anything that's that's new to you. This is just the world that you and I woke up in this morning. Um, I, I, I referenced um, Breaking Bad last week, and so why not go two for two? Let's do it again today. Um, if you're familiar with the show, Walter White is the main character, and he is fighting lung cancer, and there's this really pivotal, poignant scene when he is in the lobby of a doctor's office waiting for his test results to see if his cancer has advanced. And he's sitting next to this other patient, this guy that he doesn't know, and they kind of strike up this kind of small talk conversation. Both, both of them are waiting for their test results. And here's what uh, this other gentleman says. He says, you know, for me, this has been the biggest wake-up call, letting go, just giving up control. And Walter White looks at him and goes, that is such nonsense. I'm giving you the PG version of what was communicated. And the other guy goes, uh, excuse me? And, and Walter White says, never give up control. Live life on your own terms. And the other guy says, yeah, I mean, no, I, I get what you're saying, but, you know, cancer is cancer. And Walter White says, to hell with your cancer. I've been living with cancer for the better part of a year. Right from the start, it's a death sentence. It's what they keep telling me. Well, guess what? Every life comes with a death sentence. Until then, who's in charge? Me. That's how I live my life. Now, you watch that scene and you're like, okay, he's being a little aggressive. He's being a little intense. But still, we resonate with that feeling and like, yeah, I'm in charge of me. So what is wrong with that? What, what is, why, would, why is that poisonous? That's, a, that's strong language. Why do we need to repent of that? Well, let me try to connect the dots and show you two, two problems for, why, for how self-sovereignty works itself out that, that is actually poisonous. Here's the first problem with self-sovereignty. If you really embrace that lifestyle of I, I'm in charge, I can do what I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. It's me. I belong to me. First problem with that is it destroys communities. That approach to life destroys communities 
Because that way of thinking tricks you into thinking that you're an island, that you're not really connected to other people, that you don't belong to your community, and that if you really live your life giving in to your desires without any reference point to anybody else, that does incredible damage. I mean, that, that's the root behind sexual assault. It's, it was people in power who said, I'm going to exercise my self-sovereignty, do whatever I want. And I mean, that's the, that's the evil that the whole Me Too movement is, is responding to, is this, is this, you can just do whatever you want. It hurts people. You gotta take other people's feelings and bodies and dignity into consideration. This is the whole, you know, this is the whole root behind r racial injustice of you had for centuries, uh, particularly white people that decided let's kidnap and enslave and rape and torture and murder people of color because it seems to kind of benefit us without any reference to how other people might feel about that. And then let's create systems that only benefit people that look like us and not anybody else. This is the root behind uh, child abuse. This is the root behind adultery. This is the root ultimately behind what's going on with Russia, Russia and Ukraine, of uh, my needs, my desires don't matter as much as yours. So I'm gonna do whatever I want. Now I know you hear some of these examples and you think, well yeah, I, I agree with all that. That's all barbaric. That's all terrible stuff. I don't believe that. I think you should be free to do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. We had that little clause at the end. You're free to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And while that's way better, um, I, th I think that there's still a problem with that. Because the reality is, is that you're still, you're not an island. You are connected to other people. And so think about this. Let's say that you want to live, you choose to live a lifestyle that's incredibly self-destructive. And you say, okay, I'm just going to indulge myself in drugs and alcohol or whatever. It's, I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm just, I'm just kind of wrecking my life. I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody else. Well, the reality is you are hurting other people because you're connected to other people. And other people love you and your fans and your, 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 your family and your friends care about you. And when you hurt yourself, it hurts them. You're not an island. You're not independent. I, you know, I used to um, uh, be a campus minister. I was on the University of Tennessee's campus uh, with my wife and our staff there for seven years. And I can't tell you how many phone calls I got from concerned parents that would call me and say, I don't know if you know my son. I don't know if you know my daughter. They're so-and-so. They, they, they're, they're making horrible decisions. They're doing X, Y, and Z, and, and we need you to go find them and go help them and go, you know, save them, in other words. And you just hear the fear and the hurt and the concern in their voices when, you know, their, their kid is on campus in their mind thinking, I'm not doing anything to hurt anybody. I'm just doing what, what I want. For, for me, and yet it does hurt other people because you're connected to other people. You're not an island. You do belong to other people. So that's, that's, the, that's the first thing that you see with this, this approach to self-sovereignty. Even if you add the little clause, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it still poisons and destroys communities and unravels families and relationships. So here's the second one. Self-sovereignty destroys communities. It also destroys progress. It destroys progress. Here's what I mean by that. 
You know, in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested in Birmingham. He, uh, him and his team had done a nonviolent, peaceful protest down there. And two days before, one of the local judges had created this law that said uh, it's illegal for any public gathering to form here unless you have a permit, because they kind of knew he was in town and was planning something, some kind of demonstration. And so um, King and his team said, well, we're going to exercise our First Amendment rights and we're going to protest anyway. And they did. They got arrested. Fifty of them went to jail and, and King was put in solitary confinement. And uh, there were all these ministers, these local ministers that got together, and they wrote an open letter published in the newspaper to King, calling him out as a hypocrite. Of You're somebody who's telling us that we need to do the right thing and give people civil rights. Well, guess what? You're, you're publicly breaking the civil laws. You're no different from anybody else. You're a hypocrite. And so King writes a response letter. And uh, he writes what is you know, now referred to as his famous letter from Birmingham jail. And I want to read you just a little excerpt from this. I think it's really fascinating how he responds. He says this, quote, One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? Well, the answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Now, you see what he just did. It's fascinating. He says, you know, well, here are these, here are these local ministers saying, it is illegal for you to protest against racism in our city. It's illegal for you to do that. And what King doesn't do is he doesn't say, well, that's true for you. And what's true for me is that we should protest. If he had just said, well, you know, you do y'all and we'll do us, if he had, if he had argued like that, he would have had no grounds to argue with them. There's, there's no basis to even have the conversation. How can I challenge you if I'm just acknowledging that, you know, you're free to believe whatever you want to believe? He doesn't do that. What he does is he says, okay, we have to get over and above our laws down here. Because otherwise, we're just, we're just, who gives you the right to privilege your views over my view? How do I have the right to privilege my view over your view? We have to look to a moral, ultimate, transcendent, moral law, what he refers to as God's law. And that is the only thing that can evaluate whether our laws down here are just or not. If you don't have that, if you don't have an ultimate moral law, then Nietzsche was right. It's just all about power then. And whoever's in power can do whatever they want, and they don't have any obligation to care about anybody else or anybody else's interest other than their own. If you don't have a moral ultimate standard, if you don't have a king, in other words, it destroys progress. We're just all 
clamoring after power, in other words. That's King's point. Now, I could go on and on and on with examples to show you that this, this impulse of self-sovereignty, it is toxic. It is poisonous. It is, it is, according to the Bible, why the world is in such a mess that it's in. But take it out of abstract land and bring it down into your own life. Where do you see this impulse show up in you? This impulse that says, I don't care what you think. I don't care what God thinks. I want to do what I want to do. And sometimes I don't even care as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Let's just talk for the, uh, with the Christians in the room for a second. I know not everybody in here identifies as a Christian, but for those of us that do, let's just examine ourselves for a second. Where do you find yourself saying things like this? Well, I know what God says about sex, but I don't really care. I want to do what I want to do. Or maybe you say things like this. Um, I know what God says about how I should care for the needs of the poor, but I'm way more interested in my career. I'm way more interested in having fun with my friends or my family, and so that's going to kind of trump anything else that God wants me to do about the needs around me. Or... Um, I know God says I should forgive other people, but it's just way more fulfilling to hold grudges. That impulse, which is in all of us, according to the Bible, is one of the reasons why our, our relationships are a mess, our cities are a mess, and the world is a mess. It is poisonous. So what do we do? What, what is the antidote to this thing that's in us and that's kind of everywhere, this instinct towards self-sovereignty. What, what is the antidote? Well, think about it like this. This is the last thing and then we'll be done. If the root of self-sovereignty is because we don't have a king, then the antidote to self-sovereignty is to get one. And so here's the question, how do you get one? How do you get a king? You submit to one. You come to God and you recognize you are God and I am not. And so I am going to uh, bow the knee to you. I am going to relinquish control of my life to you. You are in charge and I am not. That's what it means to start to relate to God as king. Now, you might hear that and think, that sounds bonkers. That sounds way too radical. That sounds too intense. That sounds like fanatic. Uh, I'm happy to kind of entrust God some things in my life, but not everything. That's, that's too much. I've got some conditions. Okay, well, think about it like this. Let's say that you go to the doctor because you're feeling sick, and the doctor checks you out, examines you, and they discover that there is a, there's a tumor inside of you that and they say, we have to get this thing out of you today. If this does not, if this does not get out of you immediately, you're going to lose your life. And so you look at the doctor, you look at the surgeon, and you say, okay, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm willing to do that. I think that, sure, that's great. I didn't know that was there. I'm, I'm sure, we can do that today. I can, I can, I'm here for that. Uh, one, I do have one stipulation, though. Um, can you just not cut me? Because if that seems like that would hurt. And I'm not interested in the scar and the stitches and all of that, so can you just not cut me? Get it out, great with that, but I do have some conditions. The doctor, the surgeon would look at you and say, 
no, there's, there's, there's no other way. We're going to have to, of course, that's how we get it out. We've got to cut you. If you're going to be healed, if your life is going to be spared, you have to make yourself completely vulnerable. You have to put your life in the hands of somebody else. Trust them with everything. Trust them with your very life if they're going to heal you, if they're going to save your life. You can't have conditions. You give them everything. You have access to everything. That's why Jesus says in this Matthew 10 passage that I included in your bulletin, he says in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To give up control like this, to surrender everything without any conditions, I mean, it feels like death. It is a death in a certain sense. You're, you're, you're dying to control. You're, you're, deni- you're, you're dying to your self-sovereignty. You're denying yourself, in other words. And you, you begin to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to let you have such full control, you get to rearrange my life in ways that might actually be painful for me. You get to tell me things to do that I might not want to do. You are in charge. You get to determine what is truth. You get to determine meaning and purpose. You get to determine what is right and wrong. I belong to you. But Jesus says, even though you will undergo a death like that, you will also find your life. The life that you were designed to live is on the other side of that death. When you die, new life comes because when you begin to live your life under his kingship, under his rulership, under his authority, he, he, he is not a tyrannical king. He's the king that made you. And when you begin to submit to his will, you start to live in line with the way that you were designed to live in the first place to live radical, sacrificial love for God and for other people, you find yourself having way more meaning and purpose because you're pulled outside of your small, claustrophobic concerns and you start to live for a story that's bigger than yourself. You find yourself having a lot, so much freedom that you're actually free to give away your freedom. You're free to deny your own freedom. You find yourself uh, have, having so much uh, deeper joy because you're, you're, you're pulled out of yourself and you have a concern for other people. You're living the life that you were meant to live. But here's the question. Why in the world would you give up full control? Why, what would compel you to give everything for his sake? Your sexuality, your money, your career, your hopes and dreams, your children, your life. What would compel you to want to give your life to Jesus. In other words, why would you give up your life for his sake? Because he's the only one who gave up his life for your sake. He's the only king in the universe that has all power and all glory and all authority and yet didn't lord it over us. But he gave all of that up to become a servant. He made himself weak so that he could serve you. He made himself nothing so that he could give his very life away for you. He became vulnerable. He became completely exposed. He got pierced. He got cut. He gave up everything for us out of complete mercy and out of complete love. And that love is the only thing that has the power to forgive us 
of our self-sovereignty, and it is the only thing that has the power to heal us of our self-sovereignty. Because what that does is it starts to replace that instinct inside of us with a different one, with an instinct that says, not my will, but your will be done. Or here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He says, and Jesus died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is someone who no longer lives for themselves, but rather lives for the sake of the one who, was die, who died and was raised. Final thought, and then I'm done. Uh, my wife, Catherine, has a post-it note on the side of her bedside table that uh, has a one-sentence prayer on it that she heard from a preacher that she likes, not me, a different preacher. Um, I think she likes me, but, but um, somebody else. This preacher once said this, and so she wrote it down, and uh, this is the, the first thing that she sees every morning. It's the last thing that she sees every night. And the prayer simply says this, Master, I am here to do your bidding. Master, I am here to do your bidding. I want to invite you and I want to invite me to repent of our self-sovereignty by turning to God and looking at him and saying, Master, I am here to do your bidding. It's an invitation for you to lose your life so that you might find the one that you were actually designed to live. It's an invitation for you. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would um, give us a vision of your love and of your grace that is so big, so beautiful, so compelling. That, that we would be moved to relate to you like this. We cannot do this on our own. Everything in us hates what I just talked about. Everything in us does not want to relate to a master. We, we want to be our own masters. Father, I pray that you would give us the humility and the courage to identify this impulse in us and to bring it to you and to bow the knee to our King, to our Maker, and to our Designer, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but find our lives hidden in, in you and in your Son. And it's in his name we pray.